You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 158 by Rudolf Steiner, a book entitled Our Connection with the Elemental World. And this is the second subsection called The World as the Result of Balancing Influences, starting with Lecture 4, given at Dornach on the 20th of November, 1914, translated by Simon Blaxland DeLange. We have, through our studies, become familiar with the idea that beneath or behind the physical world we can find the gateway to other worlds. I should like today, by way of an introduction, to speak about certain characteristics of these spiritual worlds, of which we already have some knowledge, since by extending this knowledge other aspects of this theme will become apparent to us. As you know, the world that borders upon our world is the so-called world of imagination. This world is far more mobile than our physical world, with its clear-cut outlines and sharply defined objects. We enter a fluid, fleeting world when we penetrate the veil formed by the physical world. And we are also aware that as we encounter this first spiritual world, we begin to have the feeling that we are outside our physical body. Directly we enter this spiritual world, we acquire a new relationship to our physical body, a relationship such as we have to our eyes or ears in our physical body. The physical body in its totality functions essentially as a kind of organ of perception. But we very soon notice that it is not really the physical body that is the motivating factor behind this feeling, but the etheric body. The physical body merely provides us with a kind of framework for the etheric body. We look upon the etheric body from outside, while also experiencing it as the sensory organ that perceives a world of weaving, moving images and sounds. Our relationship to the ether body that is thus embraced within the physical body is similar to our relationship to our ears and eyes. This feeling of being outside our physical body is an experience similar to that of sleep. When we are asleep, that aspect of our humanity, which is of a soul and spiritual nature, is outside our physical and ether bodies. However, at such times our consciousness is dulled, and we know nothing of what is happening to us or around us. It is therefore apparent that we can have a relationship to our physical body that is different from the one to which we are accustomed. This is something of which people need to be made aware of through spiritual science. And in the course of evolution, mankind will increasingly be directed toward such an awareness the further we go into the future. I have emphasized on many occasions that it is no arbitrary matter that we concern ourselves with spiritual science today, but that this is demanded of us because of what is currently under preparation in human evolution at this present time. This feeling of separation from one's physical body will therefore increasingly be an unfathomable experience that will come over people 
as the future unfolds. A time will come when a great number of people will begin to feel, quote, Why is it that I feel as if I were split in two, as if a second being were standing beside me? Close quote. This feeling, which will arise as a matter of course, just as hunger or thirst or other experiences, is one that people of the present and future should not fail to understand. It will become comprehensible when, through spiritual science, people manage to understand the true significance of this experience of division. As these experiences become increasingly common, it will also become necessary for educationalists to take them into account. More careful attention will have to be paid to certain experiences of children than has hitherto been the case, when these experiences have not been present to the same degree. It is true that in the maturity of later life, amidst the impressions of the physical world, these feelings that I have characterized will not be particularly strong in the immediate future. But as time goes on, they will become ever more intense. They will, to begin with, manifest themselves in the growing child, and adults will hear many things from their children that they will need to understand, the sort of things that they are liable to dismiss as absurd, but which they really should not dismiss, because they are connected with the deepest mysteries of world evolution. Children will claim that they have seen a being of some kind who told them what they should do. Someone who thinks in a materialistic way will say that this is all nonsense and that there is no such being. But anyone who wishes to understand spiritual science has to realize that this is a phenomenon of real significance. If a child speaks of having seen someone who goes away again but then keeps on returning, talks incessantly about this and that and cannot be silenced, someone who understands spiritual science will realize that something that will manifest itself with ever greater clarity in human evolution is revealing itself in the child. What is this that can be discerned here? We shall understand it if we consider two fundamental experiences, the first of which was of particular importance for the fourth post-Atlantean Greco-Roman age, while the other is of significance for our own time, when it is gradually becoming a reality. Whereas the first experience reached its culmination in the Greco-Roman age, we are slowly moving toward the second. Experiences deriving from Lucifer and Ahriman are forever influencing human life. Lucifer had a particularly strong influence upon the fundamental experience of the fourth post-Atlantean period, while in our time Ahriman is more involved and is the determining influence upon our experience. Now, Lucifer is associated with everything that has not developed into clear sense perceptions with what is perceived by man in a vague and undifferentiated form. In other words, Lucifer is connected with the experience of breathing, with inhaling and exhaling. A person's breathing has to have a quite specifically attuned relationship to his whole organism. The moment when the breathing process is disturbed in some way, the unconscious process to which we do not need to pay any attention 
is immediately transformed into a conscious process of which we are more or less dreamily aware. And when, to be specific, the breathing process becomes too vigorous and places excessive demands on the organism, it is possible for Lucifer to enter with the breath into the human organism, not necessarily Lucifer himself, but the hosts belonging to him. I am speaking here of a phenomenon which is familiar to everyone through their experience of dreams. Such experiences can arise in dreams in all sorts of ways. Nightmares, when a disturbed breathing process makes a person conscious in his dream so that experiences of the spiritual world become intermingled with it, together with all the fears and anxieties associated with nightmares, have their source in the luciferic element. Whenever an ordinary breathing process changes into choking or a feeling that one is being strangled, this is connected with the involvement of Lucifer in the breathing process. This is the crude form of the process, when, as the result of a diminishing of consciousness, Lucifer enters into the breathing process, becomes manifest in dream consciousness, and adopts the role of the strangler. This is the crude form of the experience. There is, however, a more subtle experience, where this experience of choking is toned down and is not so abrupt as physical strangulation. It would not generally be thought that there is such an experience as a refined form of choking or strangulation, but whenever someone has an inner question or a doubt about something or other in the world, this is actually a subtle experience of being strangled. Thus, when we are obliged to question something, when we are confronted by a riddle of whatever magnitude, we are being strangled, but in such a way that we do not notice it. Every doubt, every question is a subtle form of nightmare. Experiences which would otherwise be felt as crude become subtle and more intangible when they manifest themselves in a more inward way. One might well imagine that science will eventually come to study the connection of the breathing process with the posing of questions or the sense of being assailed by doubt. But in any case, everything that is associated with questions and doubts, with a sense of dissatisfaction prompted by something in the world that is approaching us and demanding an answer, or simply because we are being forced to respond out of what we are, all this is connected with the influence of Lucifer. If we consider this in the light of spiritual science, we can say that whenever we feel threatened by the angel of death in a nightmare or experience a sense of inner oppression or anxiety, where problems arise, our breathing process becomes stronger and more forceful. Whereas, if human nature is to function as it should and life is to unfold, in the right way, what lives in the breath needs to be toned down and restored to harmony. What happens when the breathing process becomes more forceful? In such a situation, the ether body and everything connected with man's etheric nature expands too far and becomes too diffuse. And as this takes place in the physical body, it cannot be confined to it and works upon the physical body as if it would tear it apart. 
an over-exuberant, too widely extended ether body gives rise to an intensified breathing process, and it then becomes possible for the luciferic element to exert a particular power. Thus the luciferic forces can find their way into human nature when the ether body has expanded. One can also say that the luciferic forces have the tendency to express themselves in an ether body that has expanded beyond the limits of the human form, that is to say, in an ether body that needs more space than is available within the confines of the human skin and thus goes beyond the form provided. If one were to imagine how one might respond artistically to this process, one might say something of this kind. In its normal state, the human ether body is the sculptor of the human form that appears physically before us. But as soon as it expands and seeks to create for itself greater space and wider boundaries than are available within the human skin, it tends to adopt other forms. The human form is no longer adequate, and the ether body endeavors to transcend it. In former times, a solution was found to this problem. What kind of form emerges when the expanded ether body, which is not suitable for human nature but is appropriate for a luciferic being, gains recognition and appears visibly before the human soul? What will then emerge from this? The Sphinx. Here we have a particular way of penetrating the mystery of the Sphinx, for it is actually the Sphinx who is at one's throat. When the ether body expands, as a result of the energy expended in breathing, a luciferic being appears within the soul. What is living in such an ether body is not the human form, but a luciferic form, the form of the Sphinx. The Sphinx presents itself as the being who fills us with doubt and torments us with questions. It therefore has a particular connection with the breathing process. But we also know that the breathing process is related in a particular way to the process of blood formation. Hence the luciferic forces also live in the blood, seething and surging through it. By way of the breathing, Luciferic beings have full access to the human blood, and if the blood is imbued with excessive energy, the luciferic nature of the Sphinx is especially powerful. Thus, because man is open to the cosmos through his breathing process, he is confronted by the Sphinx. This experience of confronting the Sphinx nature of the cosmos was a particular feature of the fourth post-Atlantean or Greco-Roman cultural period, and we see in the legend of Oedipus something of the nature of this confrontation, how the Sphinx binds itself to him and torments him with questions. The picture of man and the Sphinx or of man and the Luciferic powers in the universe is indicative of a fundamental experience that people had in the fourth post-Atlantean cultural period, namely, that when, however slightly, they broke through the boundaries of their normal life. They came into contact with the Sphinx. At such times Lucifer approached them, and they had to cope with Lucifer, with the Sphinx. 
The basic experience of our time, the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, is quite different. A particular feature of our epoch has been that the ether body is not puffed up or expanded, but is compressed, so that instead of being too large, it is too small, a situation that will intensify as evolution proceeds. Whereas we can say that in the normal form of a human being in Greek times, the ether body was too large. In a human being in modern times, the ether body is constricted, compressed, and altogether too small. As the materialistic scorn that people feel for the spiritual world intensifies, the more compressed and withered will the ether body become. But because the functions of the physical body depend on the ether body's capacity to permeate it in the right way, the physical body will always have a tendency to dry up if the ether body becomes too compressed. And if it were to dry up to an excessive degree, it would have horn-like feet instead of human feet. People will not actually have such feet, but they have the tendency to do so because of this proclivity of the ether body to become dried up and bereft of etheric forces. This dried-up ether body can be a particularly suitable domain for Araman, as is an expanded ether body for Lucifer. Araman will take on a form that is indicative of a poverty with respect to the ether body, which will develop insufficient etheric forces for properly formed feet and will instead produce horn-like goat's feet. Mephistopheles is, of course, Araman, and for the reason that I have given, it is not for nothing that he has goat's feet. Myths and legends are highly meaningful. Thus Mephistopheles very often appears with horses' hoofs, where his feet are likewise dried up and have become hoofs. If Goethe had fully understood the problem of Mephistopheles, he would not have portrayed him like a modern cavalier, for it belongs to the nature of Araman Mephistopheles that he does not have sufficient etheric forces to pervade and fashion a physical human form. However, a further characteristic is brought about by the fact that the ether body is compressed and more lacking in etheric forces than is normally the case. We can see this most clearly if we consider human nature as a whole. From a physical point of view, there is, in a sense, a duality in our nature. Just think of yourself as you are as a physical human being. And yet, it is an aspect of this physical human being that there is a constant flow of breath within it. This air is, however, expelled from the body with the next exhalation, so that this aspect of the physical human being that is associated with the air that you are breathing is continually changing. You do not merely consist of muscles and bones, but are also a breathing human being. This, however, is constantly changing. Air is passing in and out, and this aspect of your nature is connected with the constantly circulating blood. As though separated from this breathing aspect of your physical nature is the other pole, the nervous system, where nerve fluid circulates and the contact between the nervous system and the blood is of a purely external nature, 
just as only those etheric forces that have an inclination toward the luciferic nature can find ready access to the blood by way of the breath, so are the etheric forces that have a tendency toward the Mephistophelian or Aramonic nature only able to approach the nervous system and not the blood. Araman is denied the possibility of pervading the blood. He must continually live in the nerves, in a dried-up realm of bareness and austerity, because he cannot come near to the warmth of the blood. If he wants to establish a connection with human nature, he will be obliged to crave for a drop of blood, for it is so difficult for him to gain access to blood as such. An abyss lies between Mephistopheles and blood. When he is wanting to draw near to man as a living human being, when he is endeavoring to form a connection with man, he realizes that man's essential being lives in the blood. He therefore has to try to get hold of the blood. You see, it is a mark of the wisdom of the Mephistopheles legend that the pact is signed with blood. Faust must commit himself to Mephistopheles through the blood, because Mephistopheles has no direct access to blood and has to crave for it. Just as people in the age of ancient Greece confronted the Sphinx, who resides in the breathing system, so do people in the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period confront Mephistopheles, whose field of operation is the nervous system, who is cold and insipid because he suffers from bloodlessness, because he lacks the warmth of blood. It is because of this that he is a mocker of humanity, its cold and cheerless companion. Just as Oedipus had to learn to cope with the Sphinx, so do people in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch need to find a way of dealing with Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles confronts them like a second nature. The Greeks were confronted by the Sphinx as a result of what entered into them through the intensification of the breathing process and blood circulation. The human being of the modern age is confronted by everything that emanates from his intellect, from his cold sobriety, by everything that is rooted in the nervous system. This experience of coming face to face with Mephistopheles has been prophetically intuited through poetic language, but it will increasingly become a universal experience the further we proceed into the fifth post-Atlantean age, and the experiences which, as I have indicated, will appear in children will indeed be encounters with Mephistopheles. Whereas people in ancient Greece suffered from the torment of an overabundance of questions, People today are not so much tormented by a flood of questions as suffering from being in the grip of preconceptions, from having a second body at their side which is the repository of all their prejudices. What has brought this situation about? Let us consider human evolution with an open mind. There is so much that in the course of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural age has ceased to stir people's warm enthusiasm. Think of all the innumerable questions that confront us when we study spiritual science. They simply do not exist for people with a materialistic way of thinking.
The riddle of the Sphinx means nothing to them, whereas the ancient Greeks were keenly aware of it. A typical modern person does, however, have to experience something else. He is very good at having an opinion about everything. He observes the world of the senses, uses his intellect to see the connections between what he observes, and then believes that all its riddles are solved. It would not occur to him that he is to a large extent groping around in a world of imaginary pictures. But this has the effect of compressing and drying up his ether body, so that eventually the influence of the Mephistophelian powers becomes firmly linked to him as a kind of second nature, both now and in times to come. All the prejudices and limitations of materialism strengthen the Mephistophelian nature, and we can even now discern a future when everyone will be born with a second being by his side, who will say that those who speak about the spiritual world are fools. Quote, I know everything. I rely wholly upon my senses. Close quote. Of course, people will dismiss the claims of the Mephistophelian riddle as they dismiss that of the Sphinx. But they will nevertheless have a second being hard on their heels. This being will accompany them to the point where they feel compelled to think materialistic thoughts, not through themselves, but through a second being who is their companion. A materialistic outlook brings an aridity to the ether body within which Mephistopheles is able to dwell. It is essential that we understand this and that children are, in times to come, given an education whether through eurythmy or through the cultivation of spiritual scientific ideas, which can enable their ether bodies to be enlivened, so that people adopt a right attitude and come to recognize the nature of the being who stands by their side. They will otherwise not understand this companion of theirs, and will remain confronted by and under the enchantment of an otherness. Just as the ancient Greeks had to deal with the Sphinx, so will modern man have to meet the challenge of Mephistopheles, of the satyr-like, fawn-like figure with goats or horses' feet. After all, every age knows how to express what is most characteristic of it in an archetypal legend or saga. Examples of this are the Oedipus legend in Greece and the legend of Mephistopheles in modern times. And yet phenomena of this kind need to be understood at a fundamental level. You see, what is otherwise merely recounted in the form of poetry, in the drama enacted between Faust and Mephistopheles, needs to become a fundamental aspect of future education. The prelude to such a scenario is that a people or a poet have had an intuitive sense of the, in quotes, companion, but ultimately everyone will have a companion who should not remain unintelligible to him, and this companion will appear most forcefully during a person's childhood. And if adults who are responsible for education do not know how to deal appropriately with what comes to expression through children, human nature will be corrupted by a failure to understand the enchantments of Mephistopheles. It is very remarkable that these characteristics can be found everywhere in legends and fairy tales, 
for the structure of legends and fairy tales which modern scholars find so difficult to understand either has a Mephistophelian or Aramonic tendency or else has a Sphinx-like Luciferic quality. All legends and fairy tales owe their origin to the fact that their content was originally experienced in terms of man's relationship either to the Sphinx or to Mephistopheles. Deeply hidden within legends and fairy tales, we find either the theme of the riddle, the Sphinx theme, where something has to be solved and a question answered, or the theme of enchantment, where something or someone is under a spell, that is, the Mephistophelian or Aramonic theme. For what exactly is the Aramonic theme? We can recognize it when Araman is beside us, and we are constantly in danger of falling prey to him, of giving ourselves over to him and being unable to escape his clutches. When confronted by the Sphinx, one is aware of something that invades one's being and tears it to pieces, whereas in the face of Mephistopheles, one feels that one must immerse oneself in this influence, give oneself up to it, and wholly succumb to it. The Greeks had no theology in our modern sense, but they were closer to the wisdom of nature and its phenomena than people are today. They approached the wisdom of nature without theology, and because of this they were tormented with questions. Man is closer to nature in his breathing process than in his nervous system. The Greeks, therefore, had a particularly vivid experience of this approach to wisdom in their relationship to the Sphinx. The advent of theology is a sign that man no longer believes that he can be in touch with the divine wisdom of the world by being in direct contact with nature, but that he wants to study it. And his means of approaching it is not through the breathing process and the blood, but through the nervous system. The search for wisdom has, in theology, become a nerve process. But because man has shackled his wisdom to the nerve process, he draws near to Mephistopheles. And with the dawn of the fifth post-Atlantean age, this imprisoning of wisdom in the nervous system has led to the arising of the intuitive sense that Mephistopheles is chained to one's heels, that he is in close proximity. If we strip the Faust legend down to its bare essentials, we have the picture of a young theologian striving for wisdom who is tormented with doubts and sells his soul to the devil, to Mephistopheles, with the result that he is drawn into his sphere of influence. But just as it was the task of the Greeks to withstand the onslaught of the Sphinx by fully developing their human ego, so in our time do we need to get the better of Mephistopheles by extending the capacity of the ego and filling it with that wisdom which can alone come from spiritual scientific research, from a knowledge of the spiritual world. Oedipus was the greatest of these conquerors of the Sphinx. Every Greek who took himself seriously as a human being was to one degree or other a lesser version of him who had vanquished the Sphinx. Oedipus merely represented what every Greek had to experience in a typical form. What did this imply? 
Oedipus had to achieve mastery over all that lives in the respiratory system and the blood. His task was to counterbalance this aspect of man's being by means of the nervous system with its impoverished etheric forces. How did he do this? By taking the forces that are related to the nervous system, that is, the Mephistophelian forces, into his own nature, but in a healthy way, so that they do not accompany him as a second being at his side, but are within him, enabling him to counteract the Sphinx by means of these forces. From this we see that Lucifer and Araman do actually have a beneficial influence in their rightfully allotted place, but that when they are where they are not supposed to be, they have a harmful influence. For the Greeks, the Sphinx was something that they had to deal with, that they had to extricate from themselves. When they cast it into the abyss and were therefore able to bring the extended ether body into the physical body, they had overcome the Sphinx. The abyss is not somewhere outside us. It is our own physical body into which the Sphinx must be drawn down in a healthy way. But the other pole, that which works not from without but from within, must here be strengthened. The aramonic element must be embraced within man and be put into its right place. Oedipus is the son of Laos. It had been prophesied to Laos that if he had a child, this child would bring misfortune to his whole race. He, therefore, cast out the boy who was born to him. He pierced his feet, and so he acquired the name Oedipus, or club foot. Thus we have the Mephistophelian forces in the drama of Oedipus. I have said that when the etheric power is impoverished through these forces, the feet cannot develop normally. They become stunted and wither. In the case of Oedipus, this was brought about artificially. According to the legend, he was found hanging from a tree by a shepherd who brought him up and therefore rescued him from death. But he continued through life with club feet. In a certain sense, he is a sanctified version of Mephistopheles. Here, Mephistopheles is in his rightful place and can give a powerful impulse to the ego in connection with the task of the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. Oedipus is deprived of everything that constituted the greatness of the Greek era, namely, the harmony between the ether body and the physical body, which we admire in the wonderful forms of Greek art, so that he can become a, in quotes, personality, the representative human being in whom the ego becomes strong. The ego that has now migrated to the head becomes strong, while the feet atrophy. People in the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period have an opposite task. Just as Oedipus had to embrace Araman in order to confront and conquer the Sphinx, so must the people of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period, who have to deal with Araman Mephistopheles, take Lucifer into themselves. That is, they have to go through the opposite process to Oedipus. Everything that has been accumulated by the ego in the head must be pressed down by the head into the rest of man's nature. Thus philosophy, law, medicine, and unfortunately also theology have accumulated in the ego. 
and inasmuch as the ego lives in the nervous system, they are therefore all nerve processes. And now the urge arises to get rid of all this from the head and to impart it to the whole world through the veils of material existence. Now think of Faust, endowed with all that the ego has built up. Think of how he wants to divest his head of everything that Goethe has summarized in these words, quote, Alas, I have studied philosophy, law, and medicine, and unfortunately also theology, with great ardor. Close quote. He now wants to rid his head of it all. He does this, moreover, by giving himself up to a life that is not bound up with the head. He is the opposite of Oedipus. He takes the Lucifer nature into himself. And now think of everything that Faust does to receive Lucifer into his being in order to do battle with Ahriman, with Mephistopheles, who is beside him. All this shows us to what extent Faust is indeed the inverted Oedipus. Whereas everything that occurs within Oedipus as a result of the inverted Ahriman nature has to do with Lucifer, everything that happens to Faust through the inverted Lucifer nature is concerned with Araman Mephistopheles. Just as Araman Mephistopheles lives more in the outside world, Lucifer lives more in the inner world. All the misfortune that Oedipus encounters through being imbued with an Aramonic nature is connected with outward phenomena. Disaster assails his race, not merely himself. Even the disaster that befalls him personally is of an external character that he pierces his eyes and blinds himself, is an outward occurrence. Likewise, the plague that descends upon his native land is something of an external nature. All Faust's experiences, however, are of an inner soul nature and represent inner tragedies, so that Faust can also in this respect be seen as the reverse of Oedipus. If we consider these two figures, or rather these two dual figures, Oedipus and the Sphinx, Faust and Mephistopheles, we have typical pictures of the evolution of the fourth and fifth post-Atlantean epochs. When the time comes when history is regarded less as an impression of external happenings and rather as a record of what people experience, then and only then will it be seen how significant and important these fundamental experiences are. It will then be possible to see what actually underlies the ongoing flow of evolution, of which the outward phantasmagoria that is usually presented as history is merely an impression, a mere sequence of external events, however meaningful they may appear to be. Whereas the ego had to be strengthened through the entry of Araman Mephistopheles into Oedipus, that is, into the Greek soul, this ego has nevertheless become too strong in people today. They, therefore, need to free themselves once more from the ego by deepening their knowledge of spiritual events and realities of the world to which the ego belongs, if it is aware that it does not merely live in a human body, but is a citizen of the spiritual world. This is demanded by the age in which we are now living. Whereas in the fourth post-Atlantean age, people had to strive with all their might to become conscious of the ego in the physical body, people in our fifth post-Atlantean age need to devote themselves 
to becoming conscious that the ego belongs to the spiritual world. This extending of ego consciousness to encompass the spiritual world is what spiritual science represents, and so it is connected at the deepest level with the highest demands of human evolution in our fifth post-Atlantean age. The end of Lecture 4